Don't do it, man. I told you not to go. You can't just leave. We have to stick together. Don't do it. Don't do it. I'm out. He's dead. another look at Bible stories that could be investigated as X-Files. In this episode, we'll be looking at various biblical stories that could be investigated as if they were X-Files. And in case you're not familiar with X-Files, those are essentially paranormal investigations. So welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. Kingdom of the Logos is produced by clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor. And I'm Pastor Amanda. And I'm Anthony Alegria. Please, send us your things. Yes, like this Mazda Miata with a lift kit and a sort of firebird, fire chicken there on the hood. <laughs> I don't know. They're going for the whole Trans Am thing. Burt Reynolds recently passed away, and I guess this is their homage to that? I don't know. We, homage? We, homage? Homage? Homage. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> yes, yeah, send us your pitchforks for our inability to speak correctly. That's also welcome. And also we received a meme of a cat saying, he doesn't protect, he doesn't attack. But most importantly, he constantly meow for additional snack. <laughs> and that's sort of the pro-tech meme there. That was pretty good. Also, thank you so much, those in our audience, for sending us things and sending us our comments. We really want to hear from you, especially when we're doing this whole X-Files thing. If you've got a Bible story that you would like to see investigated as an X-File, you want us to talk about it, please send it to us. Um, other people have been sending us things. We'll say this guy's username is Garay Abraham, who sent us a fire emoji. Not sure if that's a form of sending us a pitchfork or something, but we got fire. I, I tried to tell him that it was good. It means good. I, all right, okay. so fire. We appreciate it. Even if it's pitchfork, send them to uh, wherever you're watching this. Send it to us in the comments, or you can mail a, a pitchfork to us at <laughs> 6186 Eaton's Creek Road, Jolton, Tennessee. Also, and if you do send us a pitchfork, it will be featured on the podcast. It will be featured on the podcast, absolutely. A pitchfork will. Another comment, Hustler Kingdom says, awesome and very motivating content. Any Followed that up with a clap and peace hand sign emoji. So thank you for that. And Creative Bible Net gives us the hands up prage emoji. So thanks for that. All right. So previously, what have we discussed when doing this? This is our second time going around with Bible stories that could be investigated as X-Files. What did we look at last time, Amanda? All right. So our stories were as follows. We looked at Miriam uh, contracting leprosy from a cloud that was found in Numbers 12. There was a bronze snake from Numbers 21. And then Moses getting water from a rock that's found in Numbers 20. And Balaam's talking donkey from Numbers 22. And then we shook it up and got into the Gospel of John chapter 9 and seeing, uh, hearing the story of Jesus healing a man born blind. All right. And today we're going to be discussing people turned into pillars of salt from Genesis 19. We'll also be talking about the handwriting on the wall from Daniel 5. And then we'll be talking about a boy who falls to his death but remains alive in Acts chapter 20. Now, in order for us to investigate these paranormal things or us to talk about them as if they would be investigated, they have to meet the following criteria. And if you send us things, this is the criteria for a Bible story to be potentially investigated as an X-File. First and foremost, it actually has to have a crisis involved. So there has to be a crisis moment involving a monster, paranormal, 
or a strange or unusual event. Number one. Number two, the monster slash paranormal event and its related crisis must have had an important enough circumstance that people started talking about it. So it has to have a reputation. It's number two. And number three, there actually has to be something to investigate. So that's the criteria for this. There's got to actually be a paranormal crisis event. There's got to have some sort of notoriety to this event. And then there has to be something to investigate. So something like a, a vision or a parable wouldn't fit into this. All right. Well, let's get right into Genesis 19. We'll be right back. How do you feel about country music? Don't really care for it. Why? Down in Nashville, a kid named Daniel Palmer walks into a local precinct to report a murder. Okay, so why is that an X-File? Well, he says that he is the murder victim. So, is someone stalking him, or is there a conspiracy? He says that yesterday, his roommate, Frank Love, came in and shot him in the face. And then somehow, a few moments later, he came back to life. Proctor, that doesn't sound much like an X-File. I mean, that's impossible. But maybe the kid just had a bad dream and woke up scared. Well, the weird thing is, is that Frank Love, he corroborates the story. He confessed to the murder. So the police arrested this Frank Love character? No, they sent the kids home and told them that they're going to be charged with filing a police report if they don't straighten up their act. But I really think there is something to this. <sighs> okay, let's try to figure this out. heard of people being the pillar of a community, but have you heard of people being a pillar of salt? We find a very interesting story in Genesis 19, so we're going to read a little bit of it, starting in verse 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all of the valley and all the inhabitants of the city, and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. So we have a very interesting story, and before we kind of go into the investigation part of it, um, we can often look at this passage and we hear things like the Lord rained down and sulfur and fire, and we and we get a very, very quickly, we get a misconception of who God is, and we kind of compare him more to a Zeus-like character, just kind of waiting for people to mess up so he can throw down a firebolt and... Um, and kill and destroy. But as we look into this story and as we begin to investigate it, I think we're going to find something quite different. And of course, the purpose of an investigation is trying to learn what happened in the midst of some crisis so that you can administer justice and righteousness. In other words, you want to find out what happened so that you can set the world on a better trajectory. You can help set the world in a better direction. You want to make things right. So I think for the purpose of this conversation, let's focus really on this salty purpose person here. Because that's really a place where you can move forwards. Because if you're there, and again, this is a story where we're able to look through time. If you were actually there in this moment, you could actually go and examine this person. And again, under the sort of format and methodology of the X-Files, you can almost see someone like Scully saying, well, was this salt really a person? Or is this just somebody looking at their toast and seeing Jesus? Or maybe something like the Shroud of Turin, where people have moral convictions. There's enough evidence there that they can see the evidence like they want to and twist it into what they want to. Or did something actually happen here? Is this, this a real legitimate thing? It's really one of those questions like the Shroud of Turin where it can be interpreted a lot of ways and no one really knows. So as we look at this, you, again, you can see somebody going to test the, the salt and examine the shape of it and imagine whether or not this pillar of salt is a person or whether it's just an interesting-looking pillar of salt. G.K. Chesterton, the theologian of the 20th century, makes the statement, we cannot believe what a saint did but we pretend to know how he felt. 
And basically what he's saying is whenever we don't understand something in the past, we have a hard time believing it, we want to ascribe our own motives or rendition on that event. And what all do you think about this, Amanda, particularly this pillar of salt and how we could interpret this a lot of different ways? And sometimes we don't want to believe things that happen, so we like to create a motive that we can believe. Yeah, and um, it reminds me of another phrase, and I don't recall who said it, but it's uh, um, for those who don't believe, no, there's no evidence enough, and for those who believe, um, no evidence is needed. And so, yeah, it's, our biases will often condition us to, to look at things and respond in certain ways. So if we see this pillar of salt and we don't want to believe that such horrors can happen if you give your life up to sin or that two cities were completely consumed uh, because of the destruction in their lives, and we can say, ah, you know, just, you know, something else happened, and we try to rationalize it in our own way. Um, but there is something quite, quite interesting that the, the story, and it is interesting, we, we always refer to her as Lot's wife, and I'm not sure if even in, in the passage it ever names her, and we, we don't really know or maybe even care to know who she was other than the fact that we see the results of, of such destruction, and it's just like, you know, could this really have been a person, or is this just a story uh, to warn us? Yeah, so the question, did this really happen, you get that piece of evidence presented to you, this pillar of salt person, You've got to ask, is there an even motive for this to happen? Why would there even be a crisis of this magnitude to start with? And salt in and of itself is something interesting. Um, I know Anthony had been bringing up something about this as well in the show prep about salt being connected to preservation and purity. And I know you were saying this as well, Amanda. Yeah, Anthony, did you want to remark more on that? Um, well, I didn't say, I didn't speak so much about the salt. I was just speaking on, um, the turning back of the wife, mm -hmm. which if you're taking it, if you're looking at it uh, metaphorically at all, she's looking back upon the destructive sin, and that is what destroys her herself. And um, what we were talking about before the show is maybe what could be the symbolism of specifically turning into salt, because most of the time salt is a good thing. So it's very strange that um, the consequence of looking back upon sin is turning into a pillar, which is bad. But it's a pillar of salt, which is normally regarded as something good. So it might just be a random detail that's uh, not really connected to the rest of it. Well, I mean, salt also is to preserve and purify, and it is serving as a reminder. There are some greater implications on that. Amanda, what are your thoughts? Salt being preservation and purity. Well, and I think, <laughs> I don't know, maybe she, looking back was, was her way of trying to preserve her own life. You know, because I, I think... We hear in the story, she she is not really keen on leaving. Lot is one the one who convinces her along with the, the two men that, that come to warn them about this. And so maybe there's something in that, that in an attempt to preserve her own life or her own way of life or her own comforts, she ends up um, being preserved in, in quite a, a, a contrasting way. Yeah. And again, is there an actual motive for these cities to be destroyed? You can go and examine this and study and say, well, are there missing cities? That should be something pretty easy to to definitively say yes or no, especially if you're there in the contemporary time frame. But one of the questions we have is, what is the motive for God coming to administer justice on these cities and judgment? Well, first and foremost, these cities are have quite the reputation of being um, wicked. They're notoriously wicked. And even when people come to visit them, they're wanting to do quite horrendous things to them. There's a lot of bad motives that says we're going to, to do things to you that you may not want, and just a lot of bad things which are going on there. But there's a wonderful conversation that has leading up to this where one of the, the characters in the story who's really one of the more protagonist side of things, even though their life's not totally right yet, is negotiating with God and saying, you know, if, if there's 50 people here, 
will you still save the city? And when they can't find 50, they say, well, if there's 45, will you save the city? And they, they can't find that. And there's this interesting negotiation that happens where humanity is asking God, how much is good worth in comparison to evil? Is two cities worth of evil worse than 50 good people? And the answer is always that any small amount of righteousness is worth more than any amount of, of evil. In fact, righteousness and goodness is so rare. It's so delicate and precious. And it's something which is, is really hidden in the world. And any amount of it is worth more than, than cities of evil. And that's one of the broader implications of this. And we find that these cities are wicked and there's a, a motive for their destruction. And sort of the broader implications of this is that, well, looking back on sin, it's not a very good thing. And the value of good and evil is, is such that, that good is rare, it's precious, and we shouldn't look back and dwell on evil. Well, final thoughts on this. If this was investigated as an X-File, there's definitely some paranormal things that happen. Uh, would there ever be resolution to this? Amanda, what do you think? No, I don't think so, because like we mentioned earlier, you can always kind of explain away some of these odd details, and it really does, the story almost kind of gets lost in the midst of the rest of the Genesis story, and it does get referenced on later in the New Testament. Jesus actually references it, and so it does become this cautionary tale, but it does quickly become almost myth-like, um, kind of like, you know, be nice or the boogeyman will come and get you. It's kind of be nice or, or, so, or you, you know, destruction will rain down on you like Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, and definitely it is one of those things where it's a reminder. Again, if this were an X-File, like many of the X-Files, there's no resolution. You get to the end of it and you say, well, we don't really know exactly what or how it happened. There was a motive of, of wickedness and there was a need for justice to come here. And all that stuff matches out. And we've got this pillar reminding us to be pure and not look back and dwell on wickedness. And that's where we'll end that. Daniel, thank you for inviting us in your home. Um, I understand that yesterday you tried to report that you were murdered, like actually killed, but you seem to be alive and healthy now. Well, yeah, I, I know it's crazy, but I'm, I'm not lying. My roommate, Frank, he shot me yesterday because I wanted out. He shot me right in the face. I, I remember feeling cold, but then there I was on the floor. I kept my clothes and all the evidence that I could. The police didn't want it, but I put it all in these bags here. Is this a rosary? Are you Catholic? Yeah, my grandmother gave it to me. Uh, I just held it in my hand after I was shot. So you were holding this when you, you got shot? There's not blood on any of this. Well, Daniel, I'm glad you got a written statement, but isn't it kind of odd that your roommate Frank would shoot you? I mean, you're still in here in the house. What? Where is Frank? Well, I, I wanted out because we were dealing skooma. You're dealing skooma? Where's Frank now? Um, after I was fine, he seemed to chill out and I haven't seen him since. Well, we'd like to keep the statement that you wrote. And while it's strange that there's no blood on any of this, we'd like to go see if we can find Frank. Can I help y'all? Yeah, are you Frank Love? Yeah. I'm Agent Proctor with the FBI. This is Agent Sparrow. Y'all here because I murdered Daniel? That's right. Well, I did. Y'all can't arrest me because he's fine now. That doesn't make sense. That sentence doesn't make sense. Look, I'm going to be honest with you. I killed him, but somehow I didn't. Everything's fine now. The cops said we were fine. We've been selling skooma, which is not illegal. He wanted out, and I told him no. You gotta be a man of your word, right? We've got an honest business. Honest? Listen, Proctor, if you want to keep talking to him, you can, but I'm going to take those evidence bags we got from Daniel and take them to the lab. 
Uh, Frank, do you have any samples of that skooma, shuma, whatever? It'll cost you. Uh, it'll cost me? Really? You just confessed to murder. Are you gonna play it like this? Look, just give us a little bit of a sample of it. So now we're going to look at a strange death that was foretold by a writing on the wall. And in case also you've been wondering where that phrase came from, the writing on the wall. We're going to find this in Daniel chapter 5, starting with verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem and be brought to him, the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite of the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him and his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. And the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have chains of gold around his neck. And shall be a third ruler in the kingdom. Then the kings, then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Shortly after this, Belshazzar is found dead, but not before he consults Daniel. Now this really is interesting because we get something so fascinatingly paranormal. I mean, I don't know how many of you have gone to dinner and seen a human hand manifest out of thin air and be writing a message to you on the wall. So as you come to this and you find out that the king is dead, you've got this strange death and you've got this weird paranormal event which has led up to his death. Of course, you're going to have to ask the question, is this even real? Starting off to investigate and trying to figure out how the king died and how this hand story may have had anything to do with this, you've got to ask the question, is it even reliable that the hand was there? I mean, that is such a ridiculous thing. How could that have even happened? So Amanda, what are your thoughts about this? Would this story even be reliable? Well, I think if we, again, if we just kind of hear the story as it is, if we were people of that day, there's something about it, because it, obviously the passage that we just read sets up this fantastic party. You know, the king's there, he's got all his wives and his concubines and his lords, and that just, uh, automatically, this is not a calm sit-down dinner, right? This is quite uh, the, the feast, and they're indulging, and they're probably very drunk, I mean, completely stupid drunk at this point, because they've not even gotten so drunk that they've just drank, like, their second glass of wine. They're asking for more cups to be brought in from the treasury, from the stolen um, goods that they got from Jerusalem. And so you know at this point, there's no good judgment happening right now. And then the hand comes and writes these words, and not only does the hand write these words, but it writes words that are in their native language. Um, so there is some mystery behind maybe their meaning, but the words are many, many tekel parson, which basically means uh, measured, measured, weighed, and divided. It's so it is, it's kind of funny and humorous that these very drunk people are seeing these words being written. And of course they have to go and grab the one sober guy they can find, the one guy uh, who, who's not indulging in all this like destructive and harmful behavior. And of course it is um, Daniel who is a prophet of God. Yeah, the writing on the wall is interesting because it's writing this word, this phrase over and over again. You might have it 
many, many way divided or numbered, numbered, way shattered, something to that effect. But basically, it's the hand is writing your life, your days, they've all been counted. Your sins, they've been numbered, and we've weighed them out and found that you are lacking something. There's something missing. You've had a lot of sins and a lot of bad things in your life, and now you're going to be shattered. Your kingdom's going to be divided up and broken into little tiny fragments and spread to other people. And, well, if you're a king and you see this happening, and, well, as the night unfolds, you're about to be dead, this is something quite unusual and quite noteworthy, especially now that there is a, a witness, someone who has seen this, who may actually be the sober one at the party, and it's, of course, Daniel, and he's not a Babylonian, as Pastor Amanda has already pointed to. So, of course, when we go to investigate this, are you ever going to find anything out from this? I think the obvious answer is, <laughs> is what, guys? No. No. I mean, you're not going to have any resolution from this. So the best you can hope for is that there is some good moral indicator. Now, as Amanda's already pointed out, these people are totally smashed and not from the euphoria of sanctification, <laughs> but instead from the... Well, we'll say the not nice things of the world. Not only are these people trashed, but they also were doing some pretty bad things. Belshazzar is not really a king. He's sort of the, the son of someone who's supposed to be the king, and Belshazzar has got a lot of bad things going on in his life, but that's for another time. But you see these people, they're wanting to defile they're wanting to defile the the nice and holy and good things of another culture. And not only are they wanting to defile that, it's it's people they've conquered. They want to defile their sacred things. But also, Belshazzar basically tells all of his people to, you know, there's armies wanting to come and overthrow us, but stand down. Hold hold any intention of, of self-preservation. Just live in the moment, get trashed, be overconfident. And that ultimately leads in death. So while the writing on the wall is there telling Belshazzar particularly that his time in life has been numbered and it's about to be divided up, the larger implication of this is that, well, take the wisdom of history pretty serious. Um, sometimes we need to be wise about the world around us. We don't just need to live in the moment, but instead look to something greater. Any final thoughts on this before we move on? Not? Let's move on. Proctor, I think we just have some kids doing drugs. Nothing more than that. One of them had a drug-induced dream that he was killed by his friend. That's it. Well, then how do they have the exact same story? They could have rehearsed it. Kids lie all the time for all sorts of reasons. Uh, Daniel wrote out a statement and Frank could have read it. Well, what if there's gunshot residue on Daniel's clothes? So what if there is? It could have been uh, there for a number of reasons. I don't see why they would make it up. They would be exposing themselves to a drug bust. There's all kinds of reasons that people make things up. Uh, remember, Daniel wanted out. Maybe he created this story so Frank would get arrested for the drugs. But then he'd be exposing himself as well. They're druggies. I don't know. I wish I had a written statement from Frank. Listen, I don't think there's a crime here. I don't even know why we're in Nashville. But why don't you just go get your statement from Frank and I'll go to the lab and do some tests. Frank, why don't you just give me a written statement? Daniel gave me a statement. Can you give me one? What are you coming at, man? I just want to know if someone could actually be, you know, killed and then come back. I already told you everything that I know. Come on, man. Just give me a statement. I don't want to. So what is the skooma you're peddling anyway? What is this stuff? Just something to make all of life's little problems go away? Daniel wanted to go away. Was he a little problem for you to get rid of? Daniel was a rat. He's always been a rat. What about you, Frank? What are you? I'm a businessman. Which leads me to my next point. You want to try some? It's not addictive. Look, man, I don't know whether to tell you to, to take life serious or to take it easy, but um, 
doing some pretty serious stuff here. Why don't you just give me a statement? What are you trying to say? I just want a statement about what happened yesterday. If you buy some, I'll give you a statement. You realize this is serious stuff you're playing with here. <sighs> Do you take card? No. You know, this stuff max would be illegal. You're pretty confident that it's not, but... Well, what are you trying to say? You're gonna arrest me? You're doing, you're doing drugs, man. You're a drug dealer. I don't like what you're saying. Frank, look. I'm here, I'm here to investigate this, this whatever it is. I want you to just give me a written statement about yesterday. First things first, I'm not a drug dealer. I'm a businessman. Frank, just write me the statement. I said I'm a businessman. Frank. So the story we just heard was of a paranormal death. Now, let's talk about a paranormal undeath. Uh, we're going to be in Acts 20, starting in verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for there is life in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. Which means they were greatly comforted, if you were at all confused by that. <laughs> okay, so basically this kid, he falls out his window, seems to break his neck and die, and then he is somehow not dead. So there's two questions I want to say come at this as we're investigating this as if it were an X-File. First and foremost, one, did the kid actually die? It's a big question to have. That's evidence that you would want to look for. And the second is, did the kid actually live? Now, these are really interesting ways of looking at this because there's a lot of questions that may come to your mind. First and foremost, does the kid actually die in the body and then he's now living in the spirit? Or is this sort of a allegory saying something in his spirit dies and then he gets resurrected in a, a new life while still in the body? A lot of interesting ways to take this. So let's just start with the question, did the kid really die? You know, in the ancient world, people didn't have modern medicine and understanding of things. What do we think about this, Amanda? Well, and I think this passage lends itself to be very ambiguous. And so we, you really can, um, you're, you're not sure. And, and one of the things I kind of noticed in, in, in the story is that usually after some kind of big miracle is performed, whether by Jesus or Peter, or in this case, Paul, there's some kind of story that then references the person being healed again. You know, the blind man now sees, the layman now walks, um, the dead are resurrected, and they're returned back to their loved ones. There's something kind of conclusion to that. And the verse immediately following, Paul goes down and he, he looks at um, this young man and says, oh, he's really not dead. And the verse right after that isn't, and so the young man gets up and walks. It's Paul goes up and gets a snack. And so it's like, so was he really not dead? And so therefore, like, there wasn't a need for this kind of miraculous, this general kind of the, the structure of which a miracle usually follows? Or, I, you know, I just, I don't know. You're, you're not really quite sure. And also it talks about he appears to be dead. So yeah, the language um, in the text really lets itself to be kind of odd. It is quite odd because again, you look at this and you say, well, maybe the kid just had an injury that wasn't as serious as people thought it was. Maybe he just got knocked out and really didn't break anything. So there's those things which people could make an argument about. But then we have the next question. Does the kid really live? 
What does it mean for him to go away alive? This is another interesting question. And now we're getting in the hairs of this, but we're just having fun with this as a conversation. <laughs> Food for thought. Um, again, if you don't like any of this, send us your pitchforks. And whether they be digital pitchforks or physical ones, either way is fine. Um, Amanda, what do you think about this? Does the kid really live? Yeah, so again, all Paul does is say, oh, there's still a little life in him. And I think our translation says, for his life is in him. And other translations say a little life and, and some kind of variation in this. So again, there, there's this ambiguity of even if he's still alive, like has some kind of brain function or his heart's still beating, like what is the state of his life? Is he able to walk? Is he in a coma? Like Again, because it then says they took the youth away alive but they had to take him so what what really is going on in the story and as pastor dylan pointed out maybe he is physically dead but there's some kind of spiritual uh life that has happened and so the people can still be comforted in the fact of knowing um that there is salvation even in the midst of death yeah and that's really where this story goes because can we figure out if this was something meant to be an allegory or if this is something which is literally the kid falls out breaks his neck he's miraculously healed we don't know we're never going to have an answer to that and if you get hung up in the weeds of that, you're going to have a lot of problems. Take the scripture for what it is. It is leading you to salvation, and it is the literal word of God. Now, whether you interpret it literally or not, that depends on what part of the Bible you're in. The books of Acts is actually recording history of the church. It's stuff which is, is true and did happen. It's not something where people are, are speaking in parables or people are having visions. This is actually a, a historical portion of the New Testament. Um, and what we see happening here is a case where something's happened. It's it's vague even in the pieces of it we get, but there are unmistakably larger implications of this, which we can definitely relate to and we need in our life today. Um, first and foremost, do not fall asleep in a church service. <laughs> yes, uh, dire consequences will happen. And I love like, again, uh, even Luke, um, who who we believe is the, the author of Acts, he's the traveling companion. So when you hear in the text, this language of we did this, it's because Luke is including himself in the story. And he even says like, and then Paul talked longer, like, like even Luke's getting tired, right? Um, so, but yes, but there are dire consequences if you fall asleep, even if the pastor is preaching for all night and all day. And that's spoken from two pastors. <laughs> I feel like we were a bit too serious when we said that. People are going to be like, oh, gosh, I think they just threatened us. Or we're going to have our neck snapped if we fall asleep. No, we will have grace and mercy for you if you fall asleep. Of Sometimes course. I want to fall asleep when I'm preaching myself. But on a serious note, the large implications of this is, first and foremost, suffering's intrinsic to life. There are people who will teach a prosperity gospel who will come and say, oh, you get saved. You no longer have problems in life hogwash. Nowhere in, in scripture are we promise that the darkest valleys will go away. And in fact, we're pretty much promised that they, they're going to be coming. The darkest valleys of life are coming. Sin is in the world. You're going to have some terrible times. Suffering is coming for you. Something's going to come and impress you and you have no idea what it is, but it's always looming around the corner or below the window. But the thing is, is God doesn't intend this for this to be the end of us. And sometimes tragedy, serious tragedy happens where we lose loved ones. Sometimes the young even are taken before we would assume their time. And even in those moments, even in those horrific tragedies, there is still life in the kingdom of God. Even for those who have passed from this life to, to be with, with Jesus, there is life. There's real life there. And we can take great comfort in that. Now, that's not exactly what happens in the story, but there is a larger lesson we can learn from this. Even when we look at the world around us, and by all indicators of the world, one has died, we know that there's some mystery about how, how God 
has created a new reality for creation, how there's something beyond this life. There's some great mystery of how salvation works, and we can take comfort in that, especially those of us who are of a tradition where we firmly believe in assurance. We can even have assurance in the fact that that life does not end with the, the bodily death. And the doesn't even end with the bodily suffering. There are some things which come to our, our life which just make us so miserable and depressed that we feel like we're in a living death. But even in the midst of that, there's still purpose for us. Another reference to G.K. Chesterton, he makes the statement that in Christianity we can be both miserable and comforted and peaceful at the same time. We can be happy and merciful. We can balance both of those. Anybody could have learned to be cheerful. Anybody could have learned to be in a state of depression. But in the church, you can realize that there is suffering in the world, but you can also know that there's also peace and prosperity in the midst of suffering. The suffering has a new purpose. Well, any final thoughts on this, guys? Well, and I think just kind of to wrap this up with some words from um, Jesus as we were talking about suffering but also finding peace in it. Um, Jesus leaves his disciples right before his, his crucifixion with these words in John 16, saying, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. All right. Any final thoughts? Anthony? Nope. I think you guys summed it up really well. All right. Well, Anthony's been doing hard work even though he hasn't um, – been speaking a lot in this podcast. He runs everything and it's quite the excellent little producer. But thank you for watching us. Send us your things. We'll feature them in the podcast. And even if they are your pitchforks, send them to <laughs> us um, and make sure they're nice and hot. If we're going to be getting uh, burned at the stake, we might as well do it right. Anyways, on that, God love you and have a blessed day. What happened? Did you catch Frank? Catch Frank? What are you talking about? Uh, he had some kind of weird trip on the drugs. He, he shot a window, then he ran out into traffic and got hit by a car. He, Proctor, Frank's dead. What? I I was dead. He shot me. Look, there's a, a bullet hole in my shirt. You can see the burn mark. Uh, yeah, but there's no wound on you. Plus, there was candles all throughout that room, and we found drugs in your pocket. Uh, my pocket? Look, also in my pocket was the rosary. Daniel's rosary. I don't know what to tell you, Proctor. This case is over. Listen, it was just a bunch of kids on drugs. You probably got some in your system, too. Sparrow, I can prove it. I died. That, look, test my shirt for gunshot residue. There'll, there'll be casings in the house. You can, we can test this. If I had anything in my system, you'd, you'd be able to tell. I'm telling you, you were, I know you were in the room when he shot the gun through the window, remember? And so you probably have GSR on you, and if the drugs work out of your system so quickly, if we test you now, we're not going to find anything. Let's just go home. Case file 24601. Some mysteries cannot be explained. Whether or not Daniel Palmer and Agent Proctor died or merely experienced a drug-induced dream is unknown. The question of whether or not anything actually important happened today is likewise unknown. While we cannot tell what happened, we know that the mysteries of death are always living close.